Well, one of my favorite movies um, of all time, actually, is the movie Braveheart. Um, oh, yeah, right. Oh, it's a guy's movie, total, and a gal's movie. It's not just guys. Um, but one of my favorite parts in the movie is actually right before William Wallace's death. He's brought before this crowd of mockers, right, in England, and, and he's up there on the stage, and they begin to torture him, and he can end the torture if he just cries out mercy. It's one phrase, mercy. That's all he has to do. But he doesn't give in. And the torture goes on and on and on, even to the point that the crowd that was mocking him, they begin to do what? Shout mercy for him. They're like, end this. This is so brutal. And then finally he leans over to the judge who's expecting those repentant words. And instead, with everything that's left in William Wallace, he gives this blood-curdling scream of what? The one word, freedom, right? I almost start crying every time I watch that part. Um, what, what grabs me about it is that we all long for freedom. Every single one of us. We'd even be willing to die for freedom. I mean, we are Americans, aren't we? The land of the free, the home of the brave. But what is freedom anyway? I mean, what are we longing for when we're longing for freedom? And so I actually want to stop here for a second and do a little interaction, all right? So I want to ask you, how would you define freedom? And I'm going to write some of these answers up here on the board. So go ahead and shout out. Don't be shy. We're a super relaxed community here. How would you define, describe freedom? Come on. You, I know you got some answers lying in there. Come on. Being out of jail, okay, being out of jail, good, okay. Single, <laughs> okay, all right, what else we got out there, come on, what's freedom? Unbound, very good, that's a great word, what else do we got? Freedom, what comes to your mind when you think of freedom? Like an eagle, soaring over <laughs> An eagle, Yes, like this, yeah, kind of this unbound, but also this soaring language, this eagle imagery. That's very American. There you go. Choice. Choice. From penalty, so from punishment, kind of, good, good. So freedom from folly, is that what you Oh, freedom to follow. Okay, so freedom to follow, that's kind of an outplaying of that choice. Freedom to follow. Or to live out your faith. What else? I mean, we all, we, we love freedom. We sing about it all the time and salute to it and all these other things. What, what do you think of when you think of freedom? Free will, so the language of personal choice again, this free will, that's another good synonym, free will. Somebody else was saying something? Peace. Oh. Oh, freedom from tyranny. Forgiveness. What was the other one? Control. Yeah, freedom from... We've got a lot of freedoms from things, right? 
Authenticity. That's a goodie. From guilt. Not quilt, but guilt. And shame. <laughs> we like a good quilt every now and then. Freedom from guilt and shame. Excellent. I mean, these are some really great observations as we wrestle around with this pretty abstract idea of freedom. Um, and through the lens of Western culture, I'd say a good summation, many times that we think of freedom, when we think of freedom, we think of unhindered personal expression, right? And individual autonomy, able to do what I want when I want. And Tim Keller in New York City, he's a pastor, he gives a good summation of a wide range of scholars and social commentators when he writes, and it's up here on the screen, in the West, individual happiness and autonomy must come before anything else. People's identities constantly shapeshift as they move through life episodes. They, they always stand ready to change direction and abandon commitments and loyalties without qualms and to per- pursue on a personal cost-benefit basis, the best opportunity available to them. Or as the Rolling Stones sang, you know, in their song, I am free, I'm free to do what I want any old time. I'm free to do what I want any old time. So love me, hold me, love me, hold me. I'm free any old time to get what I want. I mean, this is the anthem of rock and roll. This is the United States, right? Shoving off the shackles of the man. I don't got no obligations or requirements to anyone. I'm my own person. It means being able to do what we want when we want, and you better still love me for it. You better still accept me for it. And you better still affirm me in my freedom, right? Well, the hard truth is, when we define freedom that way, we're really bad at it. We're really bad at freedom. Why? Because the more we pursue life on our own for personal expression, two things happen. First, We find ourselves more and more isolated from relationships because they become a hindrance to our freedom, actually, because they require commitment. They require sacrificing our own desires for the good of others, at least for relationships that last and are healthy. Second, instead of living lives of self-expression, when this is the definition of freedom, many times we actually end up living lives of self-oppression. We become oppressed by our very own desires and passions and appetites that control us any longer. Well, this sort of freedom that we find many times in Western culture is rooted in selfishness. And what we find is the selfish will never be free. The selfish will never be free. You see, in the Bible, freedom is never defined as personal autonomy. The English theologian John Stott, he put it this way, true freedom is not freedom from all responsibility to God and man in order to live for myself, but the exact opposite. True freedom is freedom from myself and from the, the cramping tyranny of my own self-centeredness in order to live in love for God and others. Only in such a self-giving love is an authentically free and human existence to be found. In essence, the selfish will never be free. Now, I know that's a pretty audacious claim, but if that's true, how do we find true freedom, real freedom? How do we define freedom from a biblical perspective as God has designed us to be free? Well, in our passage this morning, we're going to see four things, four things. The goal of freedom, the enemy of freedom, 
the source of freedom, and the walk of freedom. Okay? Well, let's begin in a word of prayer, um, just to prepare our hearts once again for God's word as he guides us into all freedom through Christ. Our Father, we come to you socially situated with our own lenses on how to perceive freedom. We come to you broken people, many times self-centered and focused on our own wants rather than your purposes and loving others sacrificially. I pray, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would continue to open our eyes, unstop our ears, mold our hearts, and illuminate our minds to be more fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. We thank you for today and for your word. May we not only be hearers of the word, but doers also. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, first, we're going to see the goal of freedom. The goal of freedom. Look at what Paul writes in verse 13 in your copies of Scripture. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures yourselves, we've got some on the tables just on the opposite side of those dividers. Don't hesitate to just get up and grab one, and it is yours to keep as a gift from us. But Paul says in Galatians 5, verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So what's the goal? Is it to do what I want, when I want, how I want? No, the goal of freedom, as we see here in Scripture, is to serve others out of love. Now, before we go any further, we need to do a little background. Why is Paul talking about this in the first century? Why is Paul talking about freedom when he's writing these churches in Galatia? Well, Galatians is one of Paul's earliest letters, okay? So when we come to a a passage of Scripture, we need to understand the context before it can speak to our own lives. What's going on in the historical narrative? Well, there's a group of churches he started in the Galatia region of the Roman Empire that were in the middle of a crisis. There were these teachers who had come after Paul had continued on to plant more churches throughout uh, the Roman Empire. And they began to convince the churches in Galatia that they needed to be circumcised to follow Jesus. Ouch, you know. In other words, they needed to obey all the Jewish uh, laws to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. We're all trying to figure out how we put our Bibles together. And for these teachers of the law, it was actually to obey all the Old Testament laws, the Mosaic commands. And Paul says, this is such a dangerous teaching. You do not need to obey all the Mosaic laws of the Old Testament to be a follower of Jesus. Something new is happening, a new and better covenant through Jesus. And at the heart of the gospel, we find that we are made right with God by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not performance or obedience to the old laws. I mean, if we could be good enough to be accepted... And be right with God by obeying all the old laws. Then why did Jesus come to die, Paul says? Jesus' death would have been worthless if it was just obeying all these old laws. So Paul says, look, you were enslaved under the law. But Jesus has set you free from the law. If you try to go back and live by the law again, you're re-entering the chains of slavery. That's why he says in Galatians 5.1, For freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to this old yoke of slavery. So awesome. All right, we've been set free. 
And Paul knows we're going to miss it. He knows the way we are as human beings. We love extremes. If there are no rules and legalism, then we love to shift over to license. Well, if there's no rules, then I get to choose what I want based on my feelings, on what makes me feel good. This is a free-for-all. Well, not quite. And this is where we come to verse 13 again. This gives us a little bit of the context where he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Paul simplifies things for us here. He says in this newfound freedom that we have in Christ, we have two options. Two. You can use it, this freedom, to serve yourself and so destroy others. Or you can use this freedom to serve others and so destroy your selfishness. I remember uh, before I met my wife, Allie, I was a freshman in college. And Cedarville has this, I went to a small liberal arts uh, college in Ohio. Cedarville has this one week in the year where the girls can ask you out on a date without shame. And so there was a group of guys and this group of girls, and it was the first day where we had our first snow. So it was super slick out on the roads. And we were, a a bunch of us were out practicing our e-brake slides earlier that day. So we are on our way to Chili's, because that's where you go on a date when you're in college, because it's cheaper and it's easy. And we're on our way to Chili's, and I see, you know, that it's super slick right around the sidewalk to the entrance to Chili's. I'm like, this is it. This is e-brake time. And uh, I thought, man, I'm going to look so cool. I'm going to e-brake this slide right to the front of the door, and they're going to hop out and be singing my praises and all this other stuff. Really whacked out perspective. But I I, I get up there, and I pull the e-brake, and it was way slicker than I imagined. And I slam into the sidewalk. (laughs) I thought for sure my date had smacked her head on the glass. Like, it was this, you know, you have an option. You can, the freedom to just pull up nice and smart, or you can do an e-brake. Well, I chose the e-brake and almost damaged everybody in the car. A piece of my car had fallen off, and I threw it in the trunk. And I said, oh, no, it's fine. In my back of my mind, I'm like, I'm an idiot. What was going on? And I had the freedom to either serve others by driving safely and sacrifice my selfish desire to look really cool, or I could really try to look cool and put others in harm's way. This is what the two options were given here in Paul's letter. The goal of freedom isn't to serve yourself, to try to make yourself look cool, or even to serve others to get love. That sometimes is what we do either. That's another way of getting in the back door. But it's to serve others out of love. But there's a big problem, isn't there? We find it right here in our text. It's not as easy as just choosing A or B, choosing to love others and therefore sacrifice our selfishness or love ourselves and therefore sacrifice others. It's not as easy as just choosing that. Why? Because we're in a war zone. We see it right here in the text, or better yet, this war zone is within us. And we find that Paul describes the enemy of freedom and the source of freedom are at odds with one another, covertly battling for every square inch of our hearts. Look at verse 16 again. Paul writes, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. 
The flesh is at war with the spirit. And there's no diplomatic compromise possible. Neither will surrender until it has all of you. Well, Paul tells us here that the flesh, with its desires, its passions, its appetites, this is our enemy of freedom. And it's here we need to pause and take a closer look and ask the question, what is the flesh? We've kind of, many, many times we can just look at this and say, the flesh is our bodies. But that's not quite a complete picture. What is the flesh? Well, imagine it like this. You're diagnosed with a terminal heart condition, and your entire body is going into shock. So you're dying, but then a donor heart becomes available, and someone has just recently died, and they give you their heart. So you're rushed into surgery, the dead, diseased heart is removed, the new heart is put in its place, and eventually this new healthy heart will restore health to your whole body. But at first, the body fights and rejects the transplant which happens at times. It fights against the one thing that it can bring, that can bring life to it. That force that rejects the transplant, that's the flesh in our walk with God. Everyone in Christ has been given a new heart in Christ. But that old selfish nature, our flesh, rejects it. It's, it's, used, um, to the, it's used to the old way of doing things rather than working rightly and a new world order underneath the reign of Jesus Christ. What I'm not saying, what Paul isn't saying, and what we many times think he's saying is that it's our physical bodies that are bad and our spiritual, this immaterial piece of us, that's good. Well, that's not what Paul is saying. Rather, it's our whole way of being. This new being conformed to a whole new way of being. That includes your mental, your spiritual, your physical, your emotional, your relational, your social self. All of you is being renewed in Christ. So this flesh, I know we're doing a little work here, but it's just we have to do the work to understand what's going on. So stay with me. Uh, this, this flesh is this unrelenting old selfishness that screams it's all about me. It's all about me, such that we can't even hear the voice of other people that are around us. The selfish will never be free because their desires are relentlessly trying to control every step. So, what does this look like for the flesh to be in control? How does it look like in dev- everyday life? Well, the works of the flesh are easily seen. They're very plainly seen, and we see them in verse 19. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and then Paul just says, and things like these, you know. You got other things that are going on, but it's kind of all in this same genre. Well, these can be broken up, I think, into four broad categories. If we're going to look and have some good lenses on how to decipher these, but one of every every as, or every one of these aspects has a similar element. They're all focused on the self. Relationships they disintegrate when the self, who we are, and and what we want, is at the center of our relationships. These appetites. They become our masters rather than love. So, for example, let's look at this first category of sexual sins. Our culture's guidance with what to do with our bodies is to have sex when we want, with who we want, and how I want, right? I mean, look at one of the best hits of this summer was Blurred Lines from Robin Thicke, right? We know the song. Most of you know the song. But sex isn't designed by God to be, I mean, it is designed by God to be a self-giving act in the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman for a lifetime. 
Sexual immorality, this term here, it covers pornography, it covers sex before marriage. I don't know how many times I hear people say, oh, we're going to get married anyway. You don't know, and that's still not what God has designed for us. But it's only within the bonds of marriage, not outside of marriage, that God has designed for us as human beings to flourish. Every form of sexual immorality is always in the end focused on me satisfying my wants now. Not God's desires. And actually the same is true of our religious sins. I mean, many times we can skip over this because we think we don't wrestle with idolatry or sorcery. You know, how many of you are out there doing sorcery? Maybe, maybe one of you. I don't know. Uh, I hope not. Um, but all of these elements have to do with manipulating God at the base of it or manipulating the gods historically to do what we want when we want them to do it. Now, we may not explicitly go to a palm reader, but we do this implicitly when we tell God this. When we tell God this, because I've been good, because I went to church this week, because I didn't get drunk at that party, when are you going to give me that promotion? When are you going to provide that wife I've been waiting for? When are you going to relieve me from this stress? When are you going to follow through and give me what I want? I've done what you want, so now follow through and give me what I want. And it becomes this manipulation. It's not about learning what God desires in order to bring Him glory, but it's about learning the angles with God so that he can bring you glory. It's a dangerous but very deceptive, and many times we overlook it and don't think that's a part of our lives when it very easily can be, just in our thought patterns. And when we're all consumed with our self-interest, it also shows up in our relationships in a myriad of ways, and I just want to look at a few here. We're not going to go through all the ones that Paul mentions here, but why do we become jealous when good things happen to other people? Because we're concerned about why they didn't happen to me. Why they didn't happen to me? What about me? Why, why do we burst out in fits of anger? Because we can't even fathom how they could do that to me. You know, do they know who I am? I'll show them who I am. And thus comes the explosion. Rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. Why do those exist? James tells us in his letter, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain. You, so you fight and you quarrel. It's all about getting what you want, when you want it. And rather than freedom in relationship, it actually breeds exclusion from relationship. The last section of sins are drinking sins. It's not that alcohol is evil in and of itself. But intentionally using alcohol in an overabundance as a way of freeing our inhibitions, freeing ourselves from our inhibitions, that can kill you, right? Why we don't have drinking and driving. And so we start saying freeing ourselves from our inhibitions, freedom, freedom from what? Freedom from thinking, freedom from caring, freedom from being concerned because we don't want to deal with our issues. Unconcerned about reasoning through how our actions even impact others. Drunkenness, it degrades us to these animalistic passions and desires that link up with the old flesh. No longer do we have self-control, but our passions take complete control. You see, when our appetites are given the driving force of our lives, the works of the flesh are in full force. And man, are they destructive. Rather than having more freedom, we find ourselves in a prison of passion. 
glimpses of this come when we hear people say, and, and we have conversations, I'm sorry I lost my temper. You couldn't control it. You lost control of your temper. Or when someone says, I don't know what came over me last night. That wasn't me. When that was you, but you released yourself to be the real you, which is very scary that we don't want to face many times. Anyone who's battled addiction or has loved someone who has battled addiction knows this pain very clearly. Not only does the flesh erode your freedom, but it abuses the freedoms of those around you. And it's this sort of life that cannot make it in the kingdom of God we see here in our passage. The kingdom of God, it's characterized by total selflessness. Think about it. It's king. Jesus was a perfect guy, God and man, who died for guilty men and women. He gave up his rights so that others might have the right to become sons and daughters of God. So those who are dominated by self, they just won't fit in the kingdom. It'll feel awkward, and they won't want to stay in the kingdom. And as we learn with selfish people, they don't do what they don't want to do. And nor will the king of this kingdom allow it to be spoiled by terminally selfish people. So in this battle for freedom, how do we win against the enemy of our flesh that's self-consuming and self-destructive? How do we escape our terminal selfishness? The source of our freedom is God himself. It was God in Christ who liberated us from the bondage of sin and through his death on the cross. And it's the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, God's very presence that empowers us to love others. This is what we see in Galatians 5. Paul tells us that if we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. This language of walking, it's a frequent metaphor used throughout Scripture to describe life. It's described the, the movement of our everyday existence. So we, we need to ask ourselves the question, who is guiding my daily steps? What is the driving force in my decisions or my thoughts? Are my passions my guide or the Spirit? And we need to answer this question because all the works of the flesh that have been mentioned, they undermine relationships and they lead us to this prison of solitary confinement. But the fruit of the Spirit is focused on others. It has Christ at the center and it cultivates flourishing relationships. So Paul says this in his letter to, to the church in Corinth. Now the Lord is the Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is is freedom. There is freedom. But he says, rather, you're biting and you're devouring one another, consuming one another. But in the Spirit, we're given freedom to flourish like a tree that produces its fruit in season. It's healthy. It's working rightly, the way it was designed to work. So, two or one quick observation that many of you probably have heard before, but I think it's important as we've talk, we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit, is the works of the flesh are described in the plural form, right? Kind of like glass, pieces of glass that have been strewn about on the road that are ready to destroy your tires. All these various pieces. But the fruit of the Spirit is singular. It's like a diamond with various facets, and each one of these facets illumines the other. So broken glass, various pieces ready to destroy where you're going, or a diamond that's beautiful 
So what are these facets of the fruit of the Spirit? Let's just walk through these really quickly. The first is love, which in our culture we need to be clear and say that this isn't desire, okay? You can desire something without wishing it well. For example, I may desire glossy ice cream cones, um, but I don't, I don't wish them well. I actually want to consume them, all of it, so that there's nothing left. I love or desire glossy ice cream cones because of how they make me feel. Not for glossy ice cream cones. Well, and here's the thing. Desire may not be incompatible with love. It should be compatible with love. Love still must rule over desire. Love must rule over desire. It has to trump our feelings. Because real love is serving a person for their good. Not for what that person brings you. Because then it's self-centered again. And even... Love is best when, it, when actually doing the good for the other costs you something, when it becomes sacrificial. This enables us to not have to be sick with love. We use this phrase, oh, I'm sick with love, just worn out. But rather we can be full of joy and love because joy is this deep gladness that can't be sunk. This is another facet of the fruit. It's more enduring than happiness. Rather, real joy is being free from mood swings because we can look at any situation and hold to the promise that all things will work out for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That doesn't mean it's going to be hunky-dory. That doesn't mean life's going to be easy. But there will come a day we hold on to the hope of who God is and the great climax of history that one day it will all work together for the good of those who love God. It may not even be in this life. But we hold on to hope and joy and the sovereignty of who God is and his goodness and his greatness. And that gives us a deep-seated joy. The opposite of joy isn't sadness. It's hopelessness. Hopelessness. And then you can see how this overlaps with peace that we have here. Peace is confidence and rest in the wisdom and control of God. Not in my control, but in God's control. And this is where peace that comes from the Spirit, it frees us from anxiety and worry that so dominates many of our lives. Waking up and our heart is racing because we're so worried about all the tasks we have to do that day or that week. Worried that we're never going to get them done. Peace that comes from the Spirit, we see in Scripture, it many times can transcend understanding. Because even though our lives may be chaotic or we may be undergoing persecution, we can have peace. Peace doesn't mean we're indifferent or apathetic or even absent from conflict. There are times when people will say they're in the middle of an argument and they just leave the argument. And then they abandon the relationship and they say, ah, I have peace. What you're feeling is the psychological effect of no longer being in tension. But that's not biblical peace. Peace is even in the middle of tension. You will not abandon relationships, but pursue reconciliation because you've been given peace with God peace with yourself, and peace even with others when others don't have peace with you. That's what we see peace is that comes from the Holy Spirit rather than a peace that the world gives. And then, as the Holy Spirit cultivates these three, I think these are the core, love, joy, and peace, these internal conditions that bleed over into our our community, we can start to see how these other facets shine, like patience, right? In unforeseen circumstances, we can be patient 
And this is opposite from shutting down. It's opposite from disengaging or even lashing out. But, but patience is able to bear circumstances that seem unreasonable. This is unreasonable. But we can bear. Bear it up with patience. Or this is untimely. This came a lot sooner in my schedule than I planned. But we can have patience because we have peace with God and we're resting in His control. The Spirit also produces kindness, which doesn't mean surfacing niceness or politeness. We, I've, I've known plenty of people who are very nice and they're very polite, but kindness here in Scripture is practical service in a way that makes the servant vulnerable. It goes out of the way, out of your way, to see needs and actually contribute to the good of the other. It's not doing deeds to feel better about myself, but going out of your way truly for someone else's advancement. That's kindness. It's not just niceness. And then we get to goodness, which is probably better translated generosity, actually. It's the opposite of jealousy and greed that we find in the flesh. It's taking your resources, whatever they are, and lavishly pouring them on others. This is goodness. And then we come to faithfulness. It can be described as loyalty, a trustworthy person, someone in whom confidence can be placed. But then sometimes we stop there. But there's a robust understanding of what a faithful person is. They're not just friends in the good times and they're not flatterers. A person who's loyal isn't just there always present in the background, but they'll actually confront you when they see you're headed in the path of destruction because they're loyal to your flourishing. Not just present, but actively pursuing your good. This is a faithful person. Two others, two other facets. Gentleness, this doesn't mean dainty, um, but gentleness is someone who's not overly impressed with their sense of self-importance. They're humble. They're self-forgetful such that when they're wronged, they respond in tenderness. Because their self-importance doesn't cause them to respond in harshness, but in gentleness. Because they know they're a sinner saved by grace just like everyone else. It's gentleness. And then finally, self-control. The Spirit frees us from being controlled by our desires. Personal expression doesn't control us. We control it. Rather than being impulsive people, forever on the whims of our instant desires, we're empowered to actually choose what's important rather than what's always just urgent. It's the language of wisdom, quite frankly. And it's all of these facets together, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control that show the Spirit is the driving force in our lives. It's all whole. It's a singular fruit. Now, when I walked through this list, many of you probably thought, oh, wow, I need to be a more loving person. Or you jotted down, oh, patience is what I got to work on. Or, oh, I'm terrible at self-control. Well, the hard but the good thing with the fruit of the Spirit is that they're the result of the Spirit working in your life, not the means. It's the result of what the Spirit is doing in your life, not the means. So the, the fruit of the Spirit isn't the result of you just trying harder. Oh, I just got to try harder to be a loving person. I just got to try harder to be gentle. But it's produced when the Christian is cooperating with the Holy Spirit to allow him to be the driving force in our lives. Look at verse 25. Paul wraps up this section in his letter with the summary statement, 
if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. There's active agent there. While the life that we have in the Spirit is clearly a gift of grace by God through faith in Jesus Christ, this new life isn't one of passivity. It's not a let go and let God. I'm done. I don't have to do anything. But let us, Paul is urging the Galatian church and he's urging us here in the 21st century, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Walk with Him rather than against Him. So, this last point, the walk of freedom. What does this walk of freedom look like? What does it look like? First, we expect the journey to be hard. We expect the journey to be hard. I mean, how are diamonds made? Does anyone know? Diamonds... They're deep down under the surface of the earth's soil. Carbon undergoes extreme heat and extreme pressure over longer periods of time, and then it's cut skillfully to create a sparkling diamond. Some of you this morning are feeling the heat. Some of you this morning know the pressure. You know it really well right now, and you feel like it's taken way too long. You're discouraged, and you may even feel like you're ready to give up. Well, the very intensity of life that your experience is actually evidence of the Spirit's work in your life. This is is evidence that God is refining you. If you aren't feeling the pressure and the heat of relationships and you're just giving into the desires of the flesh, you're just doing whatever you want whenever you want, then you have to ask yourself whether you're actually living in the Spirit at all. Are you born again in Jesus? The pressure and the battle that's waging within you is evidence that the Spirit of God is working in your heart and in your life. Well, secondly, the walk of freedom means we never walk alone. It's not a call to isolation, individual autonomy to go do our own thing. Yeah, we walk by the power of the Spirit. But as we read in chapter 5, verse 18, we also are led by the Spirit. He is working in us and with us. We're called to keep in step with Him, But it is first and foremost the Spirit that gives us life. And so many of us, we turn to God in crisis. We kind of treat our relationship with God as kind of like a mouth-to-mouth resuscitation kind of existence. When I'm finally out of breath, He revives me, rather than Him being the very air we breathe. In this journey that we've been called to, are we breathing daily, interacting with God, our Creator? Whenever we keep in step with Him as well, we find out he doesn't bring us in isolation, but he brings us into the church. He brings us into community. The Spirit doesn't guide us away from community. Always we see in Scripture that sometimes the discipline of community is the one that will refine us the most in producing the fruit of the Spirit as the Spirit is working through the church. For some of you, You're about ready to give up on the church. You're frustrated with the church. Well, the Spirit is always guiding us back into community because every single one of us are being formed into diamonds. (laughs) Every single one of us are under pressure. Every one of us are works in progress. Sons and daughters of God, yes, but being worked on by the Spirit, refined. And that's why he can say just one chapter later in Galatians 6, verse 2, He says, bear one another's burdens. You want a law? You want a law? Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You can't bear others' burdens if you're just by yourself. 
Christ is calling us to his church. He loves his bride, and he longs for you to love his bride as well. The walk of freedom is never walked alone. Thirdly, the walk of freedom requires us to sometimes take small steps. Sometimes take small steps. We need to intentionally be positioning ourselves in the spaces where the Holy Spirit does his best work. These places of God's grace have historically been called spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines, such as prayer, scripture reading, study of scripture, service of others, and community. Many times we see God using the Spirit through these avenues to refine His people. For example, some of you need to be intentional about just being in God's Word daily. Um, One of the key roles of the Holy Spirit is to reveal the truth of who we are and who God is and who He's calling us to be through His Word. Many of us in here may be longing for direction and we're longing for comfort. And yet, we do not want to go here. We're tired with this. But this is one of the key elements for God in refining us and reforming us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, His Word. The late theologian Dallas Willard, he writes this brilliantly. He says, how do such Bible stories help? That's what we all want to know. How does this really work? He says, upon a realistic, critical, adult reading by those prepared to be honest with their experience, the Bible incisively lays bare the depths and obscurities of the human heart. This is why it continues to play the decisive role it does in human history and culture and why it is fitted to be the perpetual instrument of the Spirit of God for human transformation, as 2 Timothy 3.16-17 indicates. One of my favorite movies is What About Bob? Um, I just love the movie, and... One of the most well-known scenes, right, is when he's trying to go bomb Dr. Leo Marvin's vacation with his family, but he's afraid to get on the bus. So what does he say? Baby steps to get on the bus. Baby steps. And you know, there's a lot of wisdom there, even in our walk with God. Some of you need to just take baby steps in reading Scripture. Take five minutes out of your day and read a chunk. Take five minutes out of your day to enter into the discipline of prayer. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you by going where God has said in his word that he speaks so actively through his word in community surrounded by Jesus or surrounded in Jesus. The walk of freedom, it sometimes it takes small steps. And some of you need to be intentional about taking those small steps to keep in step with the spirit. But finally, last thing, last thing. One thing we need to do every step of the way is celebrate the trailblazer. Celebrate the trailblazer. There's one who's gone before us, who's even made this journey possible, right? One who gave up his rights so that we might have the right to be called sons and daughters of God, so that we no longer are slaves, but free. We celebrate the one who's made this journey even possible through his death, Jesus Christ. The greatest weapon against the desires of the flesh is the gospel, folks. When we begin to doubt God's goodness, when we begin to doubt God's greatness, we remember that God became flesh and dwelt among us. He did what seemed impossible. And he walked perfectly by the Spirit and died and rose again so that he might send us the Spirit of freedom. The selfish will never be free. But in the words of Jesus Christ, those who lose their life for my sake will find it. We celebrate the one who's blazed the trail for us, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who is the way, the truth, and the life. 
Are you really free this morning? The journey's hard, but we're never called to walk it alone. Maybe some of you need to link up with others or remind yourself of the gift of the Holy Spirit, the person of God who is alive within you. And sometimes we need to just take some small steps and remember Jesus, the great liberator through his death on the cross and the great trailblazer who guides us in the way he has set before us. Let's pray. Our Father, we do come to you um, challenged by the words of the Apostle Paul and his letter to the church at Galatia, which is also a letter to us now, the church of the 21st century here in Kansas City, Missouri. And God, so many times we just follow our feelings, what feels good, and we do what we want, whenever we want, how we want, without regard of anyone else.